In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So no one likes it when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. Studies show that spoilers are good. Researchers took two groups of people. To one, they leaked the plot twist from a short story, and to the other, they didn't. Put them all in a room, they read the story, and they got to comment on how they liked it. And the results were that the people who had the story spoiled for them enjoyed the story more than those who didn't. No one likes it when I say this. Everyone scoffs at the research, but it is what it is. For those of you who are still skeptical, don't worry. I don't plan on spoiling anything this morning to prove my point. But here's the logic of the study. When you know the ending, you get to experience the story with anticipation. Knowing how it ends, you look for those clues that point to the twist, the kinds of things that the non-spoiled reader can only see in hindsight. Sometimes writers even do it intentionally. For instance, when a movie or TV show opens with the end of a narrative and then goes back in time to show how our protagonists ended up in their predicament. It's not just a gimmick for modern storytelling. This is, in a sense, what biblical writers do all the time. It's how Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians. He starts by giving away the ending. God has a plan that in the fullness of time, all things will be gathered up in Christ. In fact, Paul consistently communicates this vision in his letters. By pointing to the ending, he shows that all of our own storylines fit into a larger, grander plot. And make no mistake, what's going on is definitely a narrative told by a narrator. Paul says that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. God destined us to be adopted children through Jesus Christ. This kind of choosing can make us uncomfortable given our tendency to highly value our own personal freedoms. But without getting mired into the theological tangent about predestination, I think it's important to note that Paul and the other biblical writers who invoke God's election don't do it so we can step back and try and decipher God's plan, at least not what it's going to look like in the middle. They do so to comfort us by reminding us that there is a plan and what the end of that plan looks like. Now, preaching on the first Sunday after the mess that was the year of our Lord 2020 and talking about God's sovereignty may be something of a bold move. But Paul himself acknowledges that the plan isn't always apparent. In verse 9 this morning, he explains that what has been revealed in Christ, the manner in which God would renew and restore all things, was initially a mystery. And even what has been revealed now, he'll elsewhere describe as looking through a glass darkly. Things remain unresolved in the middle of the narrative, which is why later in the chapter, Paul prays that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know the hope to which they are called. Paul doesn't pray for the Ephesians to know every last curve of the path laid in front of them. He prays that they would get a picture of what will come at the end to encourage them along the way. Even to see that their own salvation is only a piece of the bigger story, which is the restoration of all things. Matthew, in his gospel, does a similar work, trying to convince his readers that Jesus is the capstone of the story of Israel, the solution to the puzzle. For Matthew, Jesus is a crucial point in the whole biblical narrative, where all of the threads start to come together. The faithful king that was promised to rule forever, the restoration of Israel, the whole world coming to worship Yahweh, it all comes together in Jesus. And in a way, Matthew also puts the end at the beginning. Here, in just the second chapter, Jesus is revealed as king of the whole world, as magi from foreign nations come to give honor 
to this newborn king. But the news disturbs or frightens Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. Why would they be frightened? Well, maybe because they know what Rome does to would-be kings. It had done it many times before. Maybe Herod sees a threat to his own power. Matthew names him King Herod here at the beginning of the chapter. Maybe, charitably, Herod sees a threat to the stability between Rome and Israel that he was trying to broker. Maybe he figured this is a less-than-ideal situation, but I've got a tenuous peace. In any case, Herod has no desire for things to change. He is stuck in his narrative, stuck on his own claim to power and stability, so much so that he won't or can't see the whole picture. The magi who look to God give Jesus proper homage. Herod will not. Jeremiah also redirects his readers to a larger narrative in the midst of crisis. What we read this morning was from a series of oracles of consolation, prophecies about restoration for the people of God. We started our reading in verse 7, but in verse 3, Jeremiah talks about this big picture, that God loves his people with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. In the midst of turmoil, God's faithfulness has become the anchor, the north star on which we can fix our eyes. It is the ending upon which all things are summed up. And so exile, pain, persecution, suffering, these will ultimately be undone by the one who is love. Because they are temporary, and God's love is fixed and permanent. God, or excuse me, Jeremiah writes that God would save the people he scattered from those who were too strong for them like a child in crisis, unable to get themselves out of the trouble they found themselves in, scared, in need of help, and out of options. God says to his people, I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, we're used to the language of father for God because Jesus uses it so frequently, even instructing us to call God our father in the Lord's Prayer. But the language is actually pretty rare in the Old Testament. Typically, we see Old Testament writers use marriage language, and Israel is to be held to a standard of covenant faithfulness that they often fail to meet. Here we have the picture of a father, a good father, who cares for and protects wayward children. Jesus invokes the same idea in the parable of the prodigal son. It's a tender comparison from a God who loves his people. When you're in the hands of a master storyteller, you, you aren't able to easily predict how things will sort themselves out, but you can be confident that they'll get there. This is the faith we are encouraged to have in our God. And yet, if we left things at that, I think we would feel cheated. I think in the midst of all of our suffering, a promise that in the end all things work out would feel insufficient. This Christmas, I reread C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, and the narrator, Oruel, Oruel, gives voice to the frustration we might have with the divine in the midst of suffering, the frustration that any of us might articulate. She says it many different ways, but very succinctly like this, why must holy places be dark places? Her complaint is constant throughout the novel, that the gods are unjust and that their ways are cruel. Now you'll have to read the story to see the whole thing. I won't spoil it all. But a simple vision of the future with no help in the present and an appeal to sovereignty without comfort gives us the distant God of the Enlightenment who creates but never truly sustains or heals. It would be a theological Marie Antoinette. Let them eat cake. Let them be comforted. Jeremiah experienced some of the dark holiness of God. 
During the tenure of his ministry, he experienced a series of disorienting upheavals. First, the global superpower, the Assyrian Empire, fell. And then Judah was briefly under Egyptian rule. And then Babylon made it a vassal state and eventually conquered it and the people were led into exile. And when autonomy over your land is the foundation of your understanding of the world, this kind of upheaval is nothing nothing short of a crisis of identity and a crisis of faith. Not to mention the fact that the God who would gather them is the same God who scattered them. Jeremiah's prophecies show that it wasn't just Babylon who opposed Judah, but Yahweh, who was punishing them for their abandonment of him. Yes, God has a plan, but the Bible does not leave out the possibility that Part of that plan is the punishment of his people. Of course, even in knowing that, we aren't supposed to step back behind God and try to think through his strategy as if we were at a cosmic chessboard trying to stay three moves ahead of him. Instead, we're called to self-examination, repentance, and then to find that God is always with us amidst the suffering, that consistently God is present with us as we weep. In Jeremiah 31.9, we see that it is with weeping that the people come back, not because they're sad at their return, but because of what they have gone through. But as they weep, God leads them to walk by brooks of water, through straight paths, for God has become like a father. Verse 13 reads, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This is a picture of a parent who sees their grieving child and comes alongside them, not to tell them, stop crying, it'll all be okay, but to come alongside them and say, stop crying, it will all be okay. Tone is everything, and God is much more of the latter and very little of the former. You see, God, not unlike crafty politicians, will not let a good crisis go to waste. But of course, unlike those who use crises for their own gain, God will not let the mess of sin be definitive. What we have done, what we have left undone, and what has been done to us, God will now not allow it to be the final word. Like the art styles that Deacon Rob Lewis and Emma Bolton have called to our attention last year, some of the most beautiful pieces are born out of brokenness and then mended by a master craftsman. Now just after our reading, Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. Jeremiah calls to mind Rachel's mourning from Genesis to remind his readers that while there is reason to weep, there is hope on the other side. And Matthew will quote this passage to do some heavy lifting. Just after our reading this morning, just after the Magi worship at Jesus' feet, Herod will respond swiftly and terribly by slaughtering any children who might have presented a threat to his rule. And Matthew will quote these verses from Jeremiah, both to give true lament to the atrocity, yes, it was an atrocity, but also to signal that in the midst of the suffering, God would end the exile, that this weeping was the first point the beginning of the end of the exile. Yes, there is crying, but we serve a God who promises to wipe every tear from our eyes. And we see that from the start, having become a refugee, fleeing for his life, the Son of God, the incarnate deity, as we sung, wouldn't keep suffering at arm's length, but would be found in the broken places, 
experiencing the brokenness of the world himself. Suffering is expected in this life, but so is God's comfort and presence in the midst of it. Don't be fooled, I've been talking about suffering, but this is still a Christmas sermon because it's about God's active choice not to abandon us, but to come among us, choosing to enter into the places where we hurt. Tish Harrison Warren writes about it this way, there is no darkness into which he has not descended. He knows the texture and the taste of everything I most fear. And Paul, even as he points to the big story, points out that we aren't just sitting on our hands waiting for the final act. God has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the pledge of the inheritance. The whole cosmos is moving towards a day where heaven and earth are one, where there is no need for sun because Christ is our light. And in the spirit, we have the first piece of that reality, God's presence with us, God among us. Paul speaks of redemption and deliverance. This is the language of the Exodus, God redeeming his people, making them his own, taking them out of slavery. But instead of slavery to the Egyptians, the slavery we were in was our sins, which we had been freed from. Paul will later point out to the Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the rulers, and the authorities of this dark world. With the big story as our guiding narrative, we can properly understand the true conflict in our own stories and then see and experience our freedom from the slavery of sin and the presence of the Holy Spirit as the first piece of the final resolution to that conflict, God making all things new. Eventually, and I confess this is a little bit of a spoiler, Oruel will come to terms with her own accusations of the gods. And she writes this, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. By the end of the book, she realizes it is the Lord who is the true answer and his presence answers the things that words cannot answer. In our psalm this morning, we read, Blessed is the one whose strength is in you, in whose heart are your ways, who going through the valley of misery uses it for a well. Indeed, the early rains fill the pools with water. They will go from strength to strength, and the God of gods shall be seen by them in Zion. Our prayer book translates it, valley of misery, but another way to talk about it is the veil of tears, who going through the veil of tears uses it for a well, and they will go from strength to strength. What the psalmist is invoking is this idea that as we go through that misery, when our strength is in the Lord, we find ourselves sustained and nourished, fixed, rehabilitated into something better than what we could have imagined. 2020 was just a calendar year, and very little of our life changed at 12.01 a.m. on January 1st. But may this be true for us, that in the depths of the pains and sufferings we have all been through, may we know, truly know, the God who is with us. May the veil of tears that we have gone through be a well. May we go from strength to strength. May we see God as we pray, as we read scripture, as we gather together, as we receive from him in the sacrament, all the places that he has promised to be with us. May we have eyes to see the big story and eyes to see God working in and present alongside us in our small stories. And to him be the glory, now and forever. Amen.